Hey everyone, it's Wayne here, and this is the Green Pill Podcast, and this will be the last podcast of the year, and I think fittingly, it's with another social scientist, someone I first heard on Adam Grant's Work Life Podcast, but Mary McDonald is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who studies organizational behavior and psychology. And for any of you who have ever been part of an organization, a corporation, a church, a community group, or even just a group of friends you hang out with within your local community, and you've tried to figure out how to change that group, well, Professor McDonald has a lot of interesting insight into how that actually happens from her studies of corporations and other organizations that have been changed by activists. You'll learn a lot about the importance of coalitions, the importance of identifying at least some people in power who can be turncoats and, and help you with your efforts to change. And I hope you can apply some of these lessons to not just your activism, but your personal life. If there's ever a group you're a part of that you feel like is going in the wrong direction, Professor McDonald's research is going to help you understand how you can pivot and, and get things pointed in the right direction. But you should really just listen to the podcast. So without further ado, here is Mary McDonald. Mary McDonald, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I've been following your research for quite some time. And my first question for you is, why does someone go to business school to study activism? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. I, I started out in law school, and I really wanted to be a law professor. Huh. And I um, was passionate about corporate governance and, and corporate regulation. I always wanted to, to know how we can make companies be better actors in society. So in the middle of law school, the Great Recession fell upon us, uh. and, and you know I saw everyone suffering through that and thought, this is my moment. If there was ever a moment when corporate regulation was going to be front and center, sure. this was that. But then we didn't regulate. <laughs> it seemed like nothing really happened, and I realized in that moment that there isn't the societal appetite for regulation in the same way that I was excited about it. Yeah. Um, but but Occupy Wall Street was out in the streets, mm -hmm. and they were actually having their voices heard and put on the, the front pages of newspapers. And so I started to see activism as, a in some ways, a more powerful regulator yeah. than formal legislation today. And so that that drove me to to study uh, social activism in business schools. Yeah, either an amazing time to be going to law school or a terrible time in two thousand eight. The best of times, it was <laughs> the, the worst, worst of times. Because time. <laughs> you know, when I graduated from law school in two thousand six, mm -hmm. basically everybody—I mean, literally everybody—at the University of Chicago Law School who wanted a job at a big firm mm -hmm. make it basically—I I don't even remember what the starting salary. I think it was something like two hundred k, maybe one hundred seventy k, could get a job. Yeah, you know. And then two years later, literally, the graduates couldn't find a job anywhere. Right. I mean, it, it went from 95% of people starting with six-figure salaries to 80% of people struggling, even yeah. at the top law schools. And, and that was such an interesting experience. But wh why did you become interested in corporate governance and changing corporations? I mean, there, was there some experience you had growing up? Were you an activist earlier in life? In Not No, it was all. just something that was just an intellectual fascination. I just loved it. I, I, just I was loved driven it. to the topic from day one. It's, I was talking to a, a student yesterday who's thinking about going to get a PhD, and I said, are you passionate about something? And she said, well, yeah, but I'm not sure it's an interesting thing. I said, yeah. It doesn't have to be yeah. interesting to everyone. If you want to wake up every day and study that thing, yeah. go go study it. And, you know, being an academic is so empowering in that way. Yeah. Did you go to Harvard Law School knowing that you, you thought you would study this particular subject? Because it sounds like you went knowing you'd be an academic. Yeah. Or you wanted to be an academic. I wanted to be an academic. Okay. Um, no, I found corporate governance, governance kind of on a whim and okay. just loved the topic. 
Yeah, there's, there's a lot of obviously incredible corporate law scholars at Harvard and, and a lot of law and econ people mm-hmm. um, like Steve Chevelle. I, you know, the, <laughs> his old book was something that we read at the University of Chicago. I was, I was a JD PhD student, so I was studying economics oh, and law. Uh-huh. And I had the intention to become a professor too. I was not nearly as successful as you. (laughs) I think justifiably so because I was not very good at it. But one of the things that's kind of interesting about law schools and business schools is that they're very professional environments. And so in Harvard, obviously, you've got more people than the average law school who are Uh probably thinking about doing something intellectual. But even at Harvard and even at the University of Chicago, where I went to law school, most people are there to join a profession, Mm -hmm. not to think about things. So... I wonder, how, how did that feel to you? Did you feel like you had a natural community at Harvard? Did you feel like this is a place where my peers are interested in the same things I'm interested in? Or did you feel like kind of a, a fish out of water? Yeah, I don't know if I had a funny cohort or what, but, but my section, my 1L section at Harvard, I never got the impression that everyone was just there trying to check the box to huh. go start at a law firm. Everybody was curious and passionate and wanting to change the world. And it was a moment when, um, you know, Elena Kagan was was still Mm. dean and she was creating this program to support people that wanted to do public service work and would forgive their law school loans. And there was so much excitement about that. And, you know, I think it was freeing people up to even imagine that alternate path for their career because they wouldn't be straddled with this debt that they couldn't, couldn't get away from. And Elena Kagan, obviously, is a great role model because she went on to become a Supreme Court justice yeah. in, what, 2009, 10? I don't even remember when it was. Something like Something that. Something like that. Did you meet her? Oh, yeah, yeah. What did you think of her? She's a very warm person, person? very informal. Huh. So it, it almost disarmingly informal. When you saw her out, she just was warm and, and completely approachable. Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing because lawyers have such a bad reputation uh, in in. in the public. I mean, if you tell someone you're a lawyer, they're like, ah, you know, you know, and, but in my experience, the law is actually one of the few professions where there's a set of values that really still animate the profession. Mm -hmm. If you look at kind of judges and and even law clerks, I mean, these are people who probably could be paid three, four X, what they're currently being paid as federal judges or clerks. Mm -hmm. And, and they kind of just decide to do public service because they think it's doing something good for the world. And you don't see that as often on other professions. I think in most professions, you see most of the prestige, most of the top people going on mm-hmm. to make the most money in engineering. You know, you go to work for Google or Facebook and you make a fortune. And in investment banking and econ, you know, you go to work for Goldman Sachs. But in the law, it, it really does seem like government service is something that's really valued. And Absolutely. I have the deepest respect for people that dedicate themselves. And I think I think outside of the legal profession, oftentimes yeah. people don't realize that those are the best of us. Those yeah. are often the best lawyers that yeah, are that's very true. sitting in that yeah. uh, role. My husband's actually, he was a, a federal prosecutor and, and mm. woke up every day just wanting to do something good in the world, not to, you know, go make a boatload of money. But Yeah. Well, speaking of which, let's talk about your research a little bit, because you've been doing research now for 15 years or so. I, I heard. Like that. I think I on the Adam Grant podcast you mentioned you started this database of of corporate campaigns in 2006 or 2007. I don't even remember what the year was. Yeah. So it's almost 15 years now, and we've seen, according to your data, a 60x increase yes. in corporate campaigns, which was astonishing to me. Even as an activist, you know, yes. I I left the academy about 15 years ago again, actually, and I started doing these sorts of campaigns against large corporations and. I've definitely seen it pick it up. I would not have guessed a 60x increase. So 
just to start, I mean, what, why did you start to record these campaigns? And, and what do you think explains this massive upsurge in, in activism against corporations? Yeah, I think, so I started to study uh, activism because, again, I saw this as, as the most powerful regulatory mechanism that, that yeah. society has today. So I wanted to track it and see uh, when we're successful using that mechanism. Um, I think that the reason it's happening, I mean, there it, there's obviously a confluence of reasons. Uh, one is that with the, the internet tools that our generation was given and, and has gotten comfortable with and, and takes for granted, activism started to be seen as something that was more global, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of the problems that our activists today are out in the street um, pushing for are not necessarily problems that, that are properly conceptualized as constrained to one given country or mm-hmm. one given regulatory jurisdiction. Uh, they're things, they're global problems. It's things like climate change. It's affecting everyone everywhere. And mm-hmm. so it doesn't really make sense to automatically think about targeting the state when mm-hmm. you're trying to tackle a problem whose boundaries are, are far beyond the state. Sure. So companies actually have that global reach today. Companies have gotten so multinational, so huge, that oftentimes even if what you're pushing for is regulatory change, if you can get a company like Walmart to help you to be your champion or, or to concede to your, to your agenda, you can simultaneously affect regulation hmm. in many different countries. Yeah. And uh, is there kind of a... A corporation that when you first started to, to started doing this research, you looked at it as like a metaphorical example, or I should say a campaign against a corporation. Was there something that caught your attention and as just an academic and intellectual saying, I want to study this. I want to understand what's going on here. Not really. Not really? For me, I was always driven by the mechanism, the not necessarily okay. anyone's story. Um, you know, I think that I, I've always been really interested in the case of Nike, just okay. because the changes that happened there in the past few decades are so extreme. Nike was one of the most closed corporations to speaking with activists, and now they're yeah. actively working with activists and always trying to be at the front lines in different um, uh, different activism. You know, it's actually funny. A buddy of mine, John Fronmeyer, uh, his, <laughs> his family is very connected to the Nike family because his father was the attorney general of Oregon and then the president of the University of Oregon. Mm-hmm. And the University of Oregon and Nike have this very close collaboration, not just because of the teams, but because like the, I think the Olympic trials always happen in the University of Oregon. And he's actually told me the same thing, that Nike has actually gone through this pretty dramatic transformation over the last 30 years. And I think that's actually kind of something that's happening in corporate America more generally. And yeah. a lot of people are pretty skeptical of it, including me, you know, there's, because there's a lot of work. I don't know if you're familiar with John, John Liss's work mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in corporate social responsibility. And I'm sure you've heard of more, the moral licensing effect and this idea that corporations are just putting this stuff out there to distract from the more insidious things they're doing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's a good trend, I think, that these things are at least happening, that people are talking about them, that people in positions of power are, are forced to be accountable to some degree. And, and that's exciting for people who are trying to create change. Yeah, I think for it to be a good trend, we all have to... Uh, look at it as a long game, yeah. which people are not inherently very good at doing. Um, but, you know, I I 
think even the symbolic wins when companies greenwash, that can have long-term effects because when you greenwash, when you're putting yourself out there as caring about the environment or about animal rights, you start to attract employees that care about those issues Mm -hmm. and, and it spoke to them when they saw that advertisement. And over time, you're filling yourself up with people that authentically care about that issue. And so it it makes it a lot harder for the company to then deviate from that, uh, you know, espoused value over the long term. So I think the counter argument to this is that one of the reasons we're so focused on corporations and one of the reasons so much activism is directed at corporations is because governments are losing power. Absolutely. (laughs) Because corporations are getting bigger. Well, yes, corporations are bigger, but I think people just see the gridlock in Washington here in the United States and just have given up entirely on that as a potential solution. And that is problematic because regulation will always be the most direct and effective way to change corporate behavior. Um, We can, you know try our best to push for change through grassroots movements that win corporate champions little by little, yeah. uh, that's always going to be a slower path to real change. Yeah, yeah. So in your view, it's almost a good thing that we're taking this new direction in activism focused on corporations as policymakers as opposed to governments, because it might even be more efficient or quicker process to get to where we need to go on an issue like climate change or even animal rights. Absolutely. Well, to the extent, I I think that for it to work, we're going to have to work a lot harder to um, be sure that we can see what companies are doing in their political activity. Because we can see, you know, PAC contributions, and we can hold companies accountable if they say they care about the environment, but they're they're supporting Congress people that are passing brown regulation. We can hold them accountable for that. But there's still so much corporate political activity that we cannot see. And until that, you know, that all of that becomes... Uh, visible, it's really hard for for activists to hold companies accountable in the way that they need to. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you think makes activism effective? Because you know, a lot of people listen to this podcast are activists themselves, and there's a million different strategies and theories of change, and not a lot of discussion of the actual evidence. And, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons I want to talk to you is because you're someone who actually looks through the evidence and performs actual experiments and looks at historical data. So what do you think are the most important lessons you've learned as an academic studying corporations and activists trying to put pressure on these corporations to create change? Yeah, I think that given the evidence as I've seen it up to this point, and things are changing wildly quickly with the new uh, tactics that activists use and the new channels they have to affect companies. Um, activism is all about reputational threat, mm. I believe. And to the extent you can disrupt a firm's reputation, you start to disrupt its relationships with critical stakeholders that it depends on for resources. Um, and so, you know, you have politicians that are less willing to openly associate with a firm. Well, that makes it more difficult for a firm to massage its regulatory environment in mm-hmm, a way that helps mm-hmm. it profit. Or you have um, employees that stop uh, feeling h- highly identified with firms, and that affects their productivity. It affects the likelihood that they're going to call in sick to work. And so companies start to see those reputational effects chisel away at their bottom line. And they know that, and they're really concerned about reputation. Uh, wh- I do not believe that activism is very good at affecting consumer behavior. Yeah. And this is something that I don't think a lot of activists realize even yeah. to this day. But your boycott is not going to adversely affect sales, yeah. you know? 
Um, I, I always tell people that I there was a Chiquita banana boycott that I got really passionate about at one point, and I didn't buy Ch- Chiquita bananas out of principle. But then I was in the grocery store one day with my two-year-old, and she really wanted a banana, and all they had was Chiquita <laughs> bananas. And when, like, my principal boycott met a screaming toddler on the floor of a grocery store, <laughs> you better believe was. Chiquita bananas came <laughs> home with me. You know, and so there's, it's just consumer behavior is too difficult to check. I think the activists' best ally today are employees, yeah. especially these employees uh, this generation of employees we see entering the workforce, people really care about the values of the organizations that they work. They have a lot more options in where they work with the kind of boundaryless job markets we have today. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that if you can if you can make employees care about an issue, then they can really help you to make sure that the company is is being an authentic champion of that issue. Yeah, I know we've absolutely seen that in our activism. And we had a recent case where a massive pig farm in Iowa during the COVID-19 pandemic was mass euthanizing these pigs because when all the slaughterhouses shut down, they had nowhere to send the pigs. And mm-hmm. the pigs actually got too big and they, they don't just fit in the stalls anymore. And some of the employees, a guy with my name, Lucas Walker, was seeing this and seeing these pigs crowding these pens, crowding these trucks, saying that they're not doing anything about it. And eventually what they decided to do, because they didn't want to continue feeding them or giving them more space, was they just closed off all the vents in the buildings and pumped in steam. Mm -hmm. And over a period of many, many hours, these animals were slowly basically being roasted alive. I know you're vegetarian. I'm sorry to say this. It's, It's a grim process, but it was happening to hundreds of thousands of animals. But, but frankly, the reason it got shut down wasn't because of activists. I mean, activists supported the employees. We put cameras and audio recorders. And, and honestly, the audio recording is probably the worst because hearing a thousand pigs squealing in agony is just, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's an experience. But because I think the company started realizing its own employees were defecting, not just truck drivers, but I think it was the company's third employee. This is a company that's like 40 years old. They had one guy who had been part of the company for 40 years was good buddies with the owner, Jeff Hansen. Mm-hmm. And he was criticizing the company and saying, I can't work here if we do these sorts of things. Even I, as a pig farmer, cannot stomach this. This is totally unacceptable to cut costs and, and just essentially boil and roast animals alive. And if we didn't have those folks internally, I think the process probably would have continued. But they just sort of realized this is, this is a morale issue. <laughs> like, we can't get our workers to go to work. We can't get them to do a good job. Um, and I think you're right that most activists don't recognize this. And it's a strange thing because there's so much critique of neoliberalism in the left, and, mm-hmm. and yet a lot of the activism is still kind of stuck in that neoliberal framing that what we're about is just getting people to buy or not buy things, mm-hmm. right? When there's a broader political and reputational conflict that if we engage with it, we could actually probably create more substantial progress, even on just buying and selling things. Mm-hmm. Is there a good example of a good reputational campaign that you think succeeded, that you've studied or you've observed over the last 10 years or so? Well, I think any of the these the animal rights campaigns that use footage, that really yeah. salient, ugly, disgusting footage, that's an extremely powerful tool because yeah, it, it will go viral quickly. Uh, it will make it impossible for the company to deny what was happening, yeah. right, because you can see it. Um, and it, it speaks to your the audience that you're mobilizing in such a salient way because because it, it it you know speaks directly to their emotions. It's not just words on a page that that share an argument. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why one of the most effective tools for corporations are trying to stop this 
reputational damage is just passing laws, criminalizing the mere act of publishing a photograph. Mm -hmm. So this guy, Lucas Walker, the employee, I mean, one of the difficulties for employees is they often face retaliation when they criticize their company. In his case, it wasn't just retaliation from the company. He was fired. I think his wife lost her job too, which is terrible. I mean, these are people who have been working for the company for decades. They're surrounded by pig farming. It's the biggest company in their county, and they don't have a lot of other employment opportunities. But the company even sent the FBI after him. Wow. And he was interrogated. They didn't ultimately charge him, but it's a scary thing. And mm-hmm. and um, and so, but but I think on the other hand, I think the flip side of that is the reason these corporations are engaging in these sorts of tactics is because they understand the tactics are working and, right. and there is reputational damage. Um, I wonder if you think that there is anything that activists uh, can do to try and recruit more employees and build better relationships with these inside stakeholders. Because oftentimes it's the opposite, right? You know, if you're an animal rights activist, you look at the people working for the pig farm and you think, well, you're all part of the problem. If you're a climate activist and you hear someone's working for Exxon, everyone in the room is going to be like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're working for Exxon? What are you doing here? When your research shows, we got to do the opposite. I mean, these folks are potentially very powerful allies. So mm-hmm. what, do, what do you think? movements have done well to try and build those bridges is it a cultural thing is there something structural we can do is it just information just knowledge about this sort of research yeah i think that many of the opportunities for expanding your footprint the footprint of your movement inside of an organization come through the new gateway professional positions that companies have created so Almost every company now has a director of recycling, for mm. example. And and just that, bringing someone who's actually usually from the environmental movement and steeped in that kind of language and, and those logics of action uh, can, can open up opportunities for many other people that are interested in the environment, environmental mo- movement more broadly to expand their footprint. Because then you've got somebody inside who's creating conversations, who's seen as legitimate, who has clear jurisdiction over these, these types of issues. And so we, that just creating a, a recycling uh, professional, for example, has led firms to, to kind of expand and, and look at ways to, to you know, score better on environmental ESG metrics or yeah. uh, understand their climate, their uh, carbon footprint and things yeah. like this. Yeah, I, I, it's kind of astonishing the number of corporations, even fairly small businesses that now have directors of sustainability, for example. So if you're an environmental activist, it's probably someone who's a natural ally. Exactly. And the last person I talked to on the podcast and hasn't even been published yet is, a, is someone who's a gay rights activist who started out in the corporate world, working for pharmaceutical companies in the 1980s and 90s when the AIDS crisis happened. Mm-hmm. He was gay himself and mm-hmm. had come out recently. And he was on the other side, technically, because he was part of a company that was basically trying to raise the prices of protease inhibitors and these mm-hmm. miracle drugs that have basically made AIDS a chronic condition. It's no longer deadly. But the time in the 80s and 90s, it was a deadly condition because there weren't enough of these drugs out there and they were extraordinarily expensive. So these activists are pressuring the corporation to lower the prices. Mm-hmm. And, and Donnie ended up being an ally, you know, because secretly he kind of was on their side. He told me, well, technically I'm employed by the company that's trying to jack up the prices uh, on the inside in my own heart. Mm-hmm. What I want is change. And I think that's one of the things that we miss in these big corporations that yeah. 
They're still comprised of people. Exactly. They're still and comprised of people. people. And that means and there are people in there that we can change, no and matter how bad the culture of the corporation is. Honestly, I don't think there are many people that wake up every morning and think, I'm going to make some money yeah. for this company today. Or I can't wait to see our stock price tick up a, a tiny percentage. I mean, that's just not what wakes people up in the morning. Yeah. So people are dedicating their lives. Most of their days are spent. With these organizations, they want to feel good about the impact that their organization's having on society. Yeah. I do think that activists could work harder to make um, activism safer for employees. So just huh. like you were saying that the employee that you worked with who was fired, that probably could have been prevented. And so one thing I think activists could be extremely useful in doing is working with some of these inter-organizational affinity groups. So, yeah. you know, chief sustainability officers all talk together in groups. Yeah, yeah. Work with those groups to figure out how to protect whistleblowers, yeah. how to both mobilize them and figure out who your allies are in the in the lower ranks of the organization, but also to protect them when they bring legitimate claims to, to, to the activists to act upon. Yeah, one of the great pieces of advice I, I, I've heard you speak about is how when you're working with these internal stakeholders, one of the most important things for them to do is have an internal group. Mm -hmm. So it's not just them alone. Because even having one other person with you, so it's not just Lucas Walker, the traitor to the pig farming industry. But no, there are a number of people. And in fact, in this particular case, Iowa Select Farms, there actually were a number of employees. Unfortunately, they're all isolated and all got fired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if we had maybe done a better job of trying to connect them and coordinate the, those employees so they could work together, it would have made it much more difficult for the company to just fire them all. But I also think that, and honestly, factory farming is a great example of this. No matter how hard you try to show that this is not something where we're just trying to destroy the individual people involved, that we're not coming at this from a place of hate, a lot of times in my experience, as someone who's you know, worked in the corporate world, I've worked at big law firms, I've worked at the largest law firm in the world, I've represented Fortune 500 companies, I've also been arrested many times protesting companies. And what I've found is that there's so many corporations that just have this very entrenched view of activists and activists. And maybe it's partly justified because they see someone in Occupy Wall Street with green hair lighting themselves on fire, something like that. It's just something absolutely ridiculous. But there is a very entrenched view that's hard to overcome. Even when there are win-win solutions, when there are things you could actually work together on to, for example, shut down ventilation shutdown in a, in a pig farm and suggest some sort of alternative. In my view, the corporate world has a more entrenched view of activism than vice versa. And I'll give you an example. And, and I'd actually ask for your advice in this particular example. The Costco CEO has exchanged emails with me <laughs> over the last few years. Um, I don't even know why he writes back. I think it's mostly out of spite. He just doesn't like me. <laughs> because we've done a lot of investigations of their cage-free egg farms. They made a big announcement they're going cage-free. It was celebrated in the Washington Post. All these periodicals said, oh my gosh, Costco's going cage-free. And then we investigated some of their egg farms and found that in cage-free egg farms, mortality is sometimes four times higher. One of the most common causes of death is cannibalism because when you've essentially replaced cages of wire with cages of flesh, you're giving them the same amount of space and the same amount of birds are crammed in the same amount of sheds. Just removing the wire metal frames doesn't really do much. In fact, the birds trample each other, they, they tear each other to pieces. And so this is what we found, and it was in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And it was a clear violation of all sorts of standards not just of, of animal welfare, but the company's own policies. So for example, technically these birds were supposed to be outdoors because they were not just cage-free organic. None of these birds ever stepped a foot outside. Um, but when I wrote to Craig Jelinek, the CEO of Costco, I didn't even expect him to reply. He writes back with kind of a, a snide email just saying, 
we will never talk to you because of the tactics you use, because we don't accept protest and you've defamed us. Mm -hmm. And I just get this sense, and I've had other interactions with other people at that level. Like John Mackey, the Whole Foods CEO, despises me and <laughs> follows my social media, sent me screenshots of things I've said that he thought were wrong or mean. And I've always tried to just have good dialogue and assume some degree of good faith and hope they will assume some good degree of faith in us. But I get the sense that in the corporate world, there's this perception of activists as crazy people who cannot be reasoned with. Mm -hmm. Is that your experience too? Um, somewhat. So, somewhat. So I, th so I have um, heard, for example, about a, a huge private company, one of huh. the biggest private companies in the United States that was trying to think strategically at the board level about how to start creating some allies in the movement community. Um, they were interested in both the animal rights movement and the environmental movement. Huh. And their idea was if we build some political capital and goodwill in the community, then they'll buffer us from some of their, they all know each other, right? Sure. And so, yeah. you know, PETA can call up Greenpeace or they yep. know each yeah. other yeah. And, and will listen to each other. So they were going about this strategically. Now in the board meeting where they had this discussion, they bucketed NGOs into three buckets. So huh. there was the green, the, the green means go bucket, the bucket to reach out to. And these were NGOs that were really bureaucratized, that looked like business people, that huh. had business people inside of them, that regularly did public-private partnerships and, and shared money back and forth, and maybe even had some shared board members with companies. Uh, and then there were the, the orange bucket, the caution bucket, and these were the the NGOs that were, you know, similarly legitimate and above board, and, but they might have used lawsuits and some mm -hmm. sort of more contentious mm -hmm. tactics. And then they put all of the activists that we think about when we when we talk about social activism who are in the streets and who use, you know, uh, boycotts and protests and actual reputationally damaging tactics in this red, red bucket. bucket. Huh. They don't talk to them. We want to distance ourselves from them. So I can tell you as an empirical matter, this is exactly the opposite of what companies can do. So Kate Odzimkowska, who is one of our prior PhD students, wrote one of her dissertation chapters with us, and we have a paper co-authored together that shows that if you can create a formal alliance, if you can support one of the more contentious activists and you can, can you know, convince them to engage in a public-private par partnership with you, that has a more direct and significant negative effect on the number of times you're contentiously targeted in the future than a, a partnership with one of the uh, types of activists that regularly engages with firms. And it's huh. because the activist community believes the more controversial activist. Yeah. If they're willing to stand with you and hold your hand in a campaign, it's a better, clearer signal that you're, you authentically care and that your your heart is in the right place. You're not just trying to strategically, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, create a shield for yourself. Yeah. So what do you think corporations, what do you think prevents corporations from doing that more often if it's in their incentives to do it? I think it is harder because we have different logics of, you know, why companies should exist and what, what kinds of... Um, uh, data they should use to feed their their actions and what kind of a, a time frame they should uh, think about when they're creating policy around some of these social issues. 
And so, you know, oftentimes activists and companies just have trouble understanding and talking to each other because they're yeah. not using each other's words and they're not using each other's logics. Yeah. Uh, that's why oftentimes these professionals that come from the activist world and then spend time in the corporate world are so useful because they become, in a way, institutional translators who yeah, can yeah. can say, you know, you actually both agree on this. You're just using different words so you don't realize that. Yeah, and it's so weird how just kind of the language you use does create this this kinship or foreignness, right? Yeah. And, and this is true between activists, too, because in the animal rights movement, for example, you've got the big NGOs like the Humane Society, and then you've got, you know, ragtag grassroots groups like the one that I co-founded, Direct Action Everywhere. And for us, we talk about social movements and mobilization and nonviolent direct action. And they talk about things like corporate partnership, you know, <laughs> and like they dress in suits. They, you know, they they care about the stock market and they pay their employees $120,000 a year while all of ours are volunteers. And and that that culture clash, that language clash actually does lead to conflict. Mm -hmm. I mean, just just sometimes because people don't understand each other. You yeah. know, some will say something like direct action and, and someone at an NGL will, will be afraid of that and say, oh, you're talking about lawbreaking activity or something very aggressive or violent. When the activists on the ground is saying, no, I actually mean something that's like, like an animal rescue. That's very nonviolent. It's very peaceful. But mm -hmm. there's a clash in, in the cultures. And I think that's even more so true of corporations and activist movements. But I'd say just like uh, the the more bureaucratized organizations need to, to think more openly about the more radicalized organizations, the opposite's also true. I, I think many of the types of activists that use more contentious tactics ought to start thinking about expanding their repertoire to use some of the tactics that they probably haven't considered, like shareholder activism. Yeah. You know, our corporate governance framework empowers shareholders so, so much, much. Yeah. but shareholders are just who they are. So if PETA wants to become a major shareholder of an organization, they can file a proposal and have a direct conversation with the company's board and management in front of all of the shareholders. That's so powerful. It's a really, you know, powerful uh, opportunity to share your voice. And I think that you know, oftentimes activists think that if they were owners, they're complicit. But sure. actually, the owners are the ones that actually have the power. Yeah, they can make the calls and make the decisions. Yeah, your research also shows that there's sometimes some threats and dangers from activists engaging in too much cooperation, right? And, and I think there's this paper you have where when there's some sort of crisis <laughs> in a corporation's <laughs> reputation, all the activist groups that have been collaborating with that corporation suddenly have to run and have a lot of reputational damage. So I'm wondering about this concern. What do you? What would you say to an activist who says, "I would love to learn the language of a corporation and, and be a shareholder and and work through some of these internal processes," but I'm worried about being co-opted. I mm -hmm. think what's going to happen to us is is we're going to be part of that system and we'll lose sight of what our mission is. I mean, what advice do you have for somebody like that? Yeah, it's difficult. Um, the activists, obviously every activist thinks about this. Um, and oftentimes they talk about doing a lot of due diligence about the backgrounds of the executives that they're talking to, to try mm -hmm. to get it if they really care or if they actually, you know, understand the issue. And is it possible that they authentically care about the company's improvement? Or is this just all, you know, window dressing? So I think due diligence is is a huge part of the way to protect yourself because, like you said, at the end of the day, the company's full of people. And if you can really trust the person you're working with, then you can feel more comfortable moving forward. 
activists have oftentimes really extensive contracts to try to protect themselves and distance themselves from reputation. And using those contracts to define exactly how the company can uh, use the activist's name in advertising the initiative or, you know, how um, uh, the two will communicate themselves as, as being in an alliance, uh, that can, can offer the, uh, the activists a lot of protection. Uh, so there's lawyers that, that specialize in this. I've never been one of them, but I've yeah. seen the contracts and was really amazed at how thoughtful they often are. Um, you know, and also really providing uh, explicit checks on how you can use the money that flows between the two organizations and things like this is important. Uh, I would say that as far as the reputational damage that can come from the organization you're working with being compromised, that that in some ways presents an opportunity that's often not seized by activists to work with a company just after the crisis. Mm. So, you know, if you are working with the company and then the crisis occurs, then you're, you know, roped in on that reputational damage. And, and we've seen that, you know, adversely affect contributions coming into to large activists, for example, that worked mm-hmm. with the BP before the BP oil spill. Now, if you're one of the activists that comes to BP just after the oil, the oil spill and says, I, am, I care about this issue and I'm going to help to, to um, show you how to clean it up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes then the, the organizations are really willing to, to give you a lot of support because they need to clean up their reputation. Uh, but you're also not going to necessarily be uh, roped in on the the reputational damage because you're part of the cleanup process, sure. not part of the process that led to the crisis. And so I think a lot of times activists are afraid to work with companies that have just been complicit in crisis, but I think they wouldn't actually suffer as much reputational damage, damage as they worry think. about if they yeah. came in and helped the company in that moment. Yeah. No, there's there's a recent example that from the work that I've been doing. And Costco and Whole Foods have kind of gone in one direction. And surprisingly, one of Whole Foods suppliers has been in many ways, one of our best allies. This is a, a company called Pittman Family Farms. I don't know if you've seen Mary's Chicken. I mean, I know you're a vegetarian, so you probably don't see this, but Rick Pittman is the owner of this company, and his face is probably seen more in grocery stores associated with chicken and turkey than maybe any face in, in the nation. And, and Rick has actually been working except with the us. Except the turkey's own face. <laughs> except the turkey's <laughs> own faces, unfortunately. But Rick Rick is, a, is an interesting guy because... Um, He's come out against the ag-gag laws in Utah and against criminalizing investigations, despite the fact his own company has been hit by investigations, including by us, right? And that was pretty shocking to me. Um, we did an investigation of his company in 2017 and found just, honestly, some of the most awful conditions. Turkeys having their toes chopped off, you know, animals confined indoors and, and, and collapsed on the ground, partially buried because they're so sick and trampled that they're halfway into the litter, but still alive. And, and so they're not even euthanizing the animals that are stuck there. And even the company's own CEO at the time said, this is disturbing. It got into CBS News. It got quite a bit of coverage. And uh, the company could have gone in two directions. I mean, they could have done what most corporations do, which is condemn the activists or make excuses, blame a couple of employees. But they actually did concede there was a systemic issue. The company tried to make some improvements. And, and, um, and subsequently, they've released a bunch of turkeys to us, given us quite a bit of transparencies, and again, come out against the prosecutions of activists and these ag-gag laws that have been passed across the country, which has been incredibly powerful. 
I think it's one of the reasons the Utah Agag law has not only been struck down, but the Utah legislature, unlike a lot of other legislatures in farm states like in Iowa, have not subsequently tried to pass another law to get around the constitutional parameters, which is what a state like Iowa or what they've been doing in states like Idaho, I think, where the legislature just keeps going back and tries to pass another law to protect these companies. But it's caused a lot of damage to us, too. Mm-hmm. You know, talking to someone who is a factory farmer has caused a lot of folks in the animal rights movement, including folks even within our own team, like within our organization, to say we're compromising our values and ethics. And, and the reality is I can kind of see that because to some degree, at least with respect to this company, we're a little more cautious about criticizing them, despite the fact that this is now one of the largest and most, most important poultry producers in the nation. They're still committing acts of violence against animals. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still a factory farm. You know, They might be lending the, door, the chickens and turkeys outdoors. They might not be detoying them anymore but there's still a factory farm slaughtering hundreds and hundreds of millions of animals. And I think one of the hardest things about this collaboration, and I think this is true of a lot of social movements, is our vision of the world and a factory farmer's vision is so divergent, mm-hmm. it's hard to see the long-term interest converging. And, and I'd say the same about climate activists. You know, it's one thing if you're campaigning against Walmart to get higher pay. You know, you're not trying to... to to demolish Walmart. You, you're not saying Walmart shouldn't exist, or at least most of the people who are employee activists at Walmart probably are not saying, I don't want Walmart to exist. But for a lot of activists, our vision of the world is so different than mm-hmm. what this corporation is trying to do that it's hard to see how these interests, especially in the long term, can align. So I wonder what you'd suggest in that sort of scenario. So you're a climate activist going up against Exxon, and, and your vision of the world is one in which Exxon doesn't really exist. Yeah. Is, is there still value in trying to do corporate partnerships or are groups like this and maybe groups like mine, you know, frankly, for collaborating with Rick Pittman? Are we foolhardy for trying to find some compromise or some resolution when, in fact, our visions are just so divergent, we have to be in conflict? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? So I, th- I think... I think one of the places where I see hope in uh, breaking through this, this, you know, apparent butting of heads is the artificial meat industry. Huh. Like you have to give the company a future in which yeah. its capabilities still are relevant, right? And it is possible to conceive of markets where a company's skills could still be relevant without the same products, right? Sure. And you see companies reinventing themselves you know, com- because of, of their products becoming obsolete all the time. So this is something that happens, like Kodak, or, you know, it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think activists, a, a really savvy thing for movements to do, and I don't think anyone activist can do it, but movements together, is to start not only mobilizing people against a particular issue, but also mobilizing pockets of consumers for, for a particular something. product, yeah. creating a, an appetite for a, a pro, an alternative product that would allow for a world in which yep. the companies that exist in that space could still exist. Yeah. And wouldn't be making the the products that are problematic. And so, you know, I I am uh, heartened by, for example, Tyson Foods taking this fairly large stake in artificial food, even though I, I you know, think there are some deep-seated <laughs> problems with that company. Sure. Uh, at least they are, 
you know, starting to enter that space. And over time, if that space continues to grow and, 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 um, you know, to, to help them to, to survive, then you'll see them start to cut back on some of the other more problematic spaces. Yeah. And one of the things I've said to Rick, and I, I you know, I, I talk to him every couple of months, I consider him a personal friend and I, I almost hate to admit this because there are a lot of people in the movement who are going to say, what personal friend with a factory farmer? But he's actually just a good guy. He's mm-hmm. a generous guy. And what I tell him is I'm very upfront with him though. I say, I'm envisioning a world where your company is making plant-based meats where all these employees are, are making tofurkey instead of turkey. Mm-hmm. You don't have to hurt any of the animals. There's no more pollution. All the blades, all the bolt guns, the electrocution, all this stuff that frankly is a threat to your employees, mm-hmm. not just to the animals, is gone. And you can still make a living for all these folks. But the reality is even when I'm saying this to him and even when he, he knows I have this vision and he knows it's a beautiful vision, his response is that's just not going to happen. And, and actually Kodak is a good example. Because <laughs> Kodak is gone. Yeah. And the reality is, especially when it comes to this sort of revolutionary economic transition, it's usually not the old players that just, you know, learn a new trick. Mm-hmm. The old dogs tend to die off and, it, and it's the new dogs that learn the new tricks. And that's true of cars. You look at Tesla and GM, it's true of e-commerce, Amazon versus Borders and Barnes and Noble. So I guess the tough thing is, you can try to say that to them, but are they going to actually think that's a credible opportunity for them? Mm-hmm. Given that so much of their expertise, you know, a company like Smithfield, a company like Tyson, there definitely is some overlap. They, mm-hmm. they have distribution capabilities, transport capabilities, administrative, you know, supply chain allocation. But so much of their business is specialized in raising and slaughtering animals for food. So how do we convince them that this is not an existential threat? to their business when we're trying to transition to this new product that doesn't involve raising animals for food. Yeah, I, I don't think you're going to convince them <laughs> okay. of that. But, you know, <laughs> what you do is you simultaneously try to shrink the market, market that's interested in those products at the same time as you're trying to enhance, augment the market that is interested in alternative products. Yeah. And they can understand the they baseline understand. sales numbers they're seeing, right? Yeah. And so that they're not listening to you for the proof. They're looking at what products are selling and what aren't. Yeah. And, and it is interesting that not just Tyson, but Smithfield and... And I think Foster Farms and a lot of these big meat companies are making investments in plant-based alternatives mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, for public health reasons, for environmental reasons, and for animal cruelty reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you a personal question. So you're vegetarian yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this something that came recently? Is this something you've been, you've, you've been vegetarian for quite some time? How yeah. did you become a vegetarian? I've been a vegetarian about 15 years. It's, it's a strange story. Huh. So I, my husband is a Catholic, and I was not raised a Catholic, and I decided to... Um, to convert. And uh, I chose St. Francis as my patron Aww, saint, this, this yeah. patron saint of animals. And so for me, giving up meat was a way to kind of stay connected with that, wow. that conversion. But it had also gotten to the point where I barely ate meat. Uh-huh. Anyway, it just always bothered me to think about why I would take something's life if I didn't have to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I've gotten really interested and passionate about vegetarian cooking. And yeah. I've really honed my skills just cooking for my family and keeping it you have to work harder to really keep it interesting when when you only make vegetarian things but we make all kinds of foods from all different places and regions and yeah um, my children are really into it now my daughter is, has chosen to be a, a vegetarian my that's son awesome. has not and that's their decision it's sure. completely yeah. up to them but um but you know i think 
I've always tried, even with my children, even when they were little, and this is not something that everyone in my family thinks is a good idea, but to, to teach them about what it means when you decide to eat a hamburger. What What yeah. is that choice? Because I feel like eating meat is a moral choice. Yeah. And we should not allow children to be making consequential moral choices, choices. before they can understand mm. the moral arguments that feed into that choice. Yeah. So it's completely okay with me if someone chooses to to eat meat. I, w- I would do my best to to argue with them to try to convince them that that's not the right moral choice, but you know that they're it's up to them to make the the choice that they think is moral. Um, however, I don't think you should give a two-year-old a hamburger because yeah. then you're you're just hoisting that choice on them on the, without yeah. them understanding what they're doing. That's interesting. I didn't realize it came from Catholicism. I was predicting that it was the philosophy education because I saw <laughs> on your resume that you studied philosophy as an undergraduate. Yeah. It was, a, Peter Singer definitely got mm-hmm. in my head at an early age and, really? and has resonated there over yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, Peter Singer is an amazing guy, too. Mm-hmm. For the decades, he's always been incredibly brave and in being willing to take positions. Because we wrote that book in 1973, 1975, Animal mm-hmm. Liberation. I mean, there was no market for that. And there was there was no one as interested in that in philosophy. And he did it anyways, because he just thought it was the right thing. And, and that book shook me, too. I mean, mm-hmm. the first sense of that book, when I read it 25 years ago, I, I, I thought it was crazy when I first read it. it it's, the first sentence is, this is a book about the tyranny of human over non-human animals. It's a, the prologue from the first edition of Animal Liberation. And this, I, I'm reading this as someone who's an animal lover. You know, my dog is my best friend. I don't know mm-hmm. if you had dogs or I cats. I did, yeah. yeah. I mean, in America, unlike in a lot of countries like my home country of China, our, our dogs are our family members. And mm-hmm. a lot of us go out really loving animals and thinking we care about animals. And the thought that we're part of a tyranny <laughs> of human over non-human animals. I mean, I remember reading that sentence thinking, this is crazy. That's, I mean, this is ridiculous. I love my dog. What do you mean I'm part of a tyrannical class? But then you start looking at the data and just the evidence. And, and I'm not just talking about the mistreatment of animals in factory farms and laboratories, as awful as that is. Mm-hmm. If you just look at across the wild, you know, we, we talk a lot about colonialism and the atrocities that were committed by colonial powers all over the world. And, and that's an important story that needs to be told. But to this day, whenever human beings come into contact with non-human animals in wild spaces, we burn down their homes, mm-hmm. we take their food and their water, we talk, often take their children away and enslave them, and often it's the most beautiful of the creatures of this earth. Elephants and chimpanzees, mm-hmm. Donnie Moss, the, the activist who was an AIDS activist, or not an AIDS activist, he was actually an opponent of AIDS activists in the 1980s, has become a, a very influential chimp activist, mm-hmm. um, even though he worked for a pharmaceutical company. because. When he looked behind the scenes and realized, where are all these chimps coming from? He found out, I think the number is, it's something like five or 10 chimp adults are murdered to steal one chimp baby who's using experiments and breeding. It's like, so you're murdering these beautiful, intelligent creatures who are endangered and going extinct, who have so many capabilities, so similar to us. I mean, so similar to us that we literally use them for medical experiments. We infect them with AIDS and we test AIDS drugs on them. This is what he learned. And yet we still don't give them any consideration at all. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that disturbed Donnie most was, you know, I mean, you can argue whatever you'd like about the justification for some of these experiments. And some of the experiments, I'm not an animal rights activist who's going to say that there's no scientific basis for experiments. There is a scientific basis for it. It does generate some outcomes that are good for the state of human medical knowledge. But even after these chimps had been experimented on for decades, you know, had their blood drawn, infected with all these diseases, when they're done, 
you know, when they're like 30 years old and they're retired. I mean, we think of our elderly folks retiring. We, we hope they have a good life, that they can, you know, enjoy themselves, maybe vacation a little bit. These chips get basically thrown into a concrete pen with no stimulation and, and are just left to slowly die mm -hmm. in isolated cages. They don't even get social stimulation. They go insane. They, they start gnawing at their own arms. They attack themselves because they're so isolated and so psychologically traumatized, not by just the decades of abuse, where at least they got some interaction, and then by the isolation at the end of their life. And, and that was the thing that really killed Donnie. So it's, yeah, it's a tough issue. It's a tough issue. And I think it's an issue that has, has moved more and more people. And I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to see companies like Tyson and Smithfield, and even more happy to see companies like Impossible and Beyond really, really blow up. Um, but I think at this point, it's still very much considered a marginal issue. So I wonder for you as someone who studies activism, there's some activist issues that I think are sort of at the forefront. I'd say climate change is an example of that. And, and certainly civil rights and Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street in 2010 was an ascendant issue. How do activists who are more on the margins, who are on the fringe, get to the point where their causes are seen as serious causes by a corporation like Costco? You know, I think the animal rights uh, movement in particular, the the opportunity I see for the movement there is that there are now so many different mobilizing arguments huh. that the movement can draw on. So I, I think they're approaching the problem as an ethical decision about what animals you eat yeah. <laughs> is always going to be pretty fringe, I think, you know, especially mm -hmm. in America, part of a, I'm from Alabama, so Lord knows meat is part of the culture. I'll tell you a funny story. When I first converted to being a vegetarian, the first Thanksgiving I went to, I told my grandparents I have to um, eat only vegetables huh. because I've made this promise to God. And so I, I got down to Alabama and went into the kitchen where they were making the, the Thanksgiving meal. And there was a ham hock floating in like every single uh -huh. vegetable dish they were uh -huh. making. And I said, I told you I can't eat I can't eat the meat. My grandmother said, well, it has to have some flavor. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is the kind of, this yeah. is the kind of culture that we're butting up against, right? But in addition to the argument about making an ethical choice about taking an animal's life, you, you now have an argument about climate change that, sure. that, you know, we just aren't going to have the space to use animals to feed the world's population soon. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the environmental conditions to, for that to, to be cost effective and for people to, to get enough food. So that's an entirely different segment of people that you can mobilize to support the movement. And now we do have um, uh, really excellent alternatives for things like you know, uh, animal fur and clothing, mm -hmm. and and uh, and in coats and boots, and and so uh, you know, as we have these um, alternatives that oftentimes hold up better than the animal products, I think it's easier and easier to mobilize a broader and broader set of people to support uh, the movement for all different reasons. Yeah, and I I know you've done some research on this, but I'm I'm thinking about Adam Grant's book Originals and this idea of tempered radicalism. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to fit in this radical change into some value system that already exists. And, and so for him, the example was women's suffrage. When people framed it very much as just women's equity, women's rights, it was a lot harder for them to get traction on, on the same policy as when they said, no, this is about domestic improvement and temperance. We've got all these drunk men mm -hmm. who are going crazy. They're being their wives. They're not 
paying the bills. Someone's got to represent these households and make sure we do something about all these drunk men. And, and, and that was something everyone kind of could get behind because mm-hmm. they saw the damage. This is you know, around the period where prohibition was about to happen. People were very concerned about alcohol usage. We're still concerned about alcohol usage, obviously. But framing it that way in terms of the values that people already held was really helpful, in, apparently, in getting that movement across the line. I think some of these other ways we can approach animal rights, even if someone is not you know, Peter Singer utilitarian who's going to say all animals are equal, which mm-hmm. is the title of his first chapter, they might say, well, I'd prefer not to get sick. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't like the use of antibiotics. You know, 70% of all antibiotics in food are being used, or 70% of all antibiotics in this country are being used by farm animals. And those antibiotics are affecting public health, not just mm-hmm. animal health. Um, so it's, it's, it's funny. You're, you're from Alabama, mm-hmm. and, and you're Catholic, and you decided to study activism and become a vegetarian. I'm an original, I think you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> an original. <laughs> How does how does your what does your family think of you now? I mean, did they obviously they have to be very impressed by the fact that you're a professor at Wharton and you've done all this important scholarly work? But do you, when you go back to Alabama, did they think you're weird? <laughs> you know, I honestly haven't been back to Alabama in oh, yeah? decades. Um, yeah, I don't. I try not. I honestly, I just don't have many conversations with my family about those types huh. of issues. Um, I, you know, we don't talk politics and we yeah. don't talk values too much. Yeah. So. Um, I'd, I'd rather just have my children have a good relationship with their grandparents sure. on that front and kind of separate the yeah, two. Yeah. yeah, so you take the good advice that don't talk politics at Thanksgiving so, yeah. so you can actually still have Thanksgiving with your yeah. family. But I think it's important for, for the movement to, to grow and survive. I think it is important for the kind of original purists in the movement to be willing to stand beside and push forward with people who are making some moral choices they don't agree with, right? Mm-hmm. If it helps them get to pass the finish line, as you said. Um, there's a, in, in social movement scholarship, the, the phenomenon's called the Baptists and bootleggers phenomenon. Hmm. You know, Baptists and bootleggers, bootleggers both supported the prohibition yeah. for entirely different for reasons. reasons. For bootleggers, it, it, made, it made their <laughs> <laughs> trade effective. Uh, and for Baptists, it was about uh, a moral good, but, but coming together and pushing for um, that regulatory change actually made it much more likely to actually happen. Huh. Uh, and I think, you know, sometimes you have to to be willing to to work with some people who are different than you if you want to actually produce change in the world. I didn't know that history. So bootleggers actually advocated for prohibition? Yes. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to learn more about this history. <laughs> so the, it sounds like your solution to the, the culture clash with, you know, the Alabama family is maybe let's just keep politics out of this. What about in business school? I mean, you're at a business school that is sending a lot of people to investment banks, to large corporations, and you're studying activism, and you're yeah. a vegetarian. So do you, do you ever feel like a fish out of water here, or do you feel like business schools are increasingly receptive to activists and, and activist scholarship? Or? Yeah, you know, all of my work is about how... Uh, how activism can affect a company's ongoing performance. performance. Why okay. really um, activism is part of the non-market that creates true veritable enterprise risk. And so it needs to be intended to and taken seriously for that reason. Yeah. And once you have people in the C-suite and on boards that realize that activists are a signal of what's mm-hmm. coming, they're a signal of, of where, you know, consumer appetites and uh financial um, perceptions of market risk are going to be shaped in the future, 
then they'll try to get ahead of those trends. Come talk to you. Yeah. I'm wondering, do corporations come and talk to you more or do activists, you know, like student or otherwise? Like who, who are, who are the people who seem most interested in this work that you're doing? Because I could see both sides really being fascinated, right? Yeah. I, I talk mostly to companies. Companies. Okay. Um, most of my work is from the company's perspective. I think a lot of it could absolutely uh, be useful in creating strategy for activists. Yeah. But I think activists don't look at the business journals yeah. when they're trying to understand what academic research could help them. So I think they're still going to political science or um, sociology. sociology. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it, it's a loss that activists don't look at all types of scholarship because at the end of the day, I mean, we're activists because we're trying to change the world, not, not just to express our sentiments about the world. And mm -hmm. to change the world, you have to understand the way the world is. And that means taking a look at a diverse set of evidence and scholarship that will help you move forward. I mean, obviously, I think on the ground experience matters immensely, too. Um, mm -hmm. One of my favorite sociologists is, uh, what is it, Sadir Venkata? Is that his name? The gang leader for day guy? Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of hypotheses you can only generate from being out there on the front lines. And I think there are a lot of hypotheses that people study activism probably only generate from being activists. I mean, Doug McAdam, for example, I don't know if you know Doug McAdam, he's a sociologist at Stanford. I've talked to him a number of times. Like he's told me that 100%, one of the reasons he was able to develop some of the insights he's developed over the years is because he participated in the anti-war movement. I mean, mm -hmm. he was there when people are burning their draft cards and getting arrested and hauled off. And it's very inspiring to him, but it also gave him a lot of insight into, okay, here's some hypotheses. And, and I, I think that I just don't see much of a bridge right now. Um, and I almost think it's, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's almost like if you try to focus on evidence and data and impact, you're seen as working with a man. <laughs> you know, it's like, why, do you, why do you look at these studies? Why are you going to places like Wharton? And I'm not saying Wharton isn't the only place where we can learn things about the world. Again, mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of things you can only learn. In the animal rights movement's case, from the animals themselves, there, there are things you can only learn in a factory farm from observing the the actual interactions of the animals in that farm. So like in a cage for egg farm, if you're not there watching the animals and seeing how they're interacting, you're not gonna realize that mortality rates have increased by 4X when we mm -hmm. moved to cage free. But there are also so many things we can learn from data. And I've struggled for years. I started Direct Action Everywhere 10 years ago, and I've struggled for years in just trying to think about how we can build better bridges between these folks who are very sophisticated and looking at data very carefully and the folks on the front lines actually doing the activism. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> How do I we get do. these groups to come together more? I, I really wish that management school, like this is, huh. this is you know, a business school. I got my PhD at Kellogg School of Management at uh -huh. Northwestern, but it's still a business school. Management school should be for anyone that's interested in managing organizations, right? And I think that activists, because you're often involved in really huge and complex organizations, would also benefit from the training and how to use data and, and how to That's interesting. influence yeah. and lead people and how to, you know, all of these things that business schools specialize in could absolutely be broader in instructing leaders that, that are outside of the, the corporate world. Do you think Warden would actually have a specialty for activists who are trying to bring companies down? I would, I mean, I I feel would like love that. You would love that. Um, yeah. I feel like there would be a lot of professors here who would be very unhappy and probably some supporters of the institution who are not so happy. Uh, we got to keep it interesting, man. That's true. Come on. Yeah. Um, think about how relevant we would stay if we could. <laughs> no, but I, I actually completely agree with you because I, I will tell you, I've managed grassroots networks of 
thousands of activists and tried to be the best leader I can be and failed a lot. I mean, I'm definitely not where I need to be. And I've also worked in the corporate world. I, mm -hmm. you know, I became a relatively senior associate at a law firm and I had junior associates, paralegals underneath me. And I will tell you, the management challenges of activism are like 10x mm -hmm. as hard as the management challenges in, within a corporation. Because the corporation, there are so many crutches they give you. Mm -hmm. the, the structure of the corporation, for example, is already, I mean, it just makes it so easy to get mm -hmm. things done. But if you really want to understand at a deeper level how to organize human beings collectively to form a mission, the structurallessness of grassroots movements is such a difficult challenge, but it's so interesting too. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right that there's a lot that activists could learn from business schools. Because business schools, I mean, you studied organization, right? right? I studied everybody organizational needs organization, theory, yeah. organizational theory. So everybody, anybody. And you know, everyone on my dissertation committee in a business school had a sociology, sociology PhD. Degree. So this is what, there's a, there, there are a lot of people that are trained in the same places where yeah. pure social movement research is being done. So, you know, I, I think that it's a problem to not recognize that they're allies in the business community and in yeah. business academia. And there are some schools that bridge better than others. So Yale School of Management huh. actually it has, a, you know, a very little um, line between business and policy in their program. And I think speak to more managers of a broader swath. So of they're actually activists who are going to the business school. Absolutely. And yeah. just, just learning how to organize to, to change the world in some positive way. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my experience in law school even was that it's it's funny because you talked about Harvard as being a pretty receptive place. I, I wonder if it's because I went to law school a little earlier than you. But my experience at the University of Chicago, which is known as a pretty academic place, it's not known as place as a place where everyone's just trying to get into big law, was that the culture of these professional schools is very business oriented. Yeah. And most people are trying to get jobs trying to get clerkships and that sort of thing. And Chicago's this... funny, though. I've actually visited at the University of Chicago for yeah. my third year of law school, so I, I saw both. Huh. Um, and I, I took a human rights law class there uh -huh. my 3 all year. And in one of the first sessions, we were doing a class on genocide huh. and talking about a particular policy that might be used to address genocide. And one of the students raised their hand and said, but if you think about it as a cost-benefit analysis, and it was just, <laughs> there are some things oh that you God. never think about yeah. as cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, maybe that's why. Yeah. <laughs> who, did, who taught that class? Just out of curiosity. I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering if it might be Eric Posner. because Eric. It wasn't. No. Eric, Eric does a lot of the human rights stuff, international law. And he, he's, he's probably, he was actually one of my mentors when I was there because I was his research assistant. And, and I was a lawn econ guy, so it made sense for me to work with Eric. And I don't know if you followed his trajectory, but his trajectory is almost like a good metaphor for the trajectory of corporate America because mm -hmm. he's turned 180 degrees in, in a very powerful way. Like he's become one of the most vocal critics of the Trump administration, has penned enormous number of op-eds in the New York Times about how Trump is a threat to democracy. Um, he and his father have become real advocates for the poor mm -hmm. in a way that I would never have imagined. Dick Posner is a very famous judge. Most people haven't heard of him outside of the law, but among lawyers, we're all like, ooh. Actually, do you consider yourself a lawyer still? Are you a licensed? I think you're a lawyer if you were trained in the law. Oh, okay. You're so, an attorney if you're barred. Yeah, so yeah, sense. I'm a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> so Dick Posner is someone lawyers know because he's founder of the Law and Economics Movement, and he's also one of the most cited federal judges. But back when I was in law school, I mean, he was just known as this very cold-hearted cost-benefit analysis who were all these crazy hippies trying to regulate companies. And, and over the last couple of years, he's made such a massive shift. And he started this foundation to, start, to help indigent defendants. And, oh, wow. 
And he said that, you know, I think one of the greatest crises in America is the fact that so, pe so few people have effective counsel because you have a right to counsel as a criminal defendant, mm -hmm. in theory. I mean, obviously, a lot of public defenders are massively overstrapped and not funded properly. And I've seen it myself. I've seen so many people who technically had a right to counsel but really didn't get counsel. But in civil cases, you don't have a right at all. Right. So if you had some devastating thing happen to you, you were fired for, you know, for blowing the whistle like Lucas Walker, this guy at ISF who worked with us and said, hey, this company's breaking the law. They're breaking their own policies. They're doing these things that I think are inappropriate. I don't like doing them. He gets fired for it. He doesn't have a right to counsel. Mm -hmm. Right. He's got to go find his own attorney. And it's 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 amazing how many of these things, you know, uh, have been that have been unaddressed are starting to be talked about, not just by the classic activist types, but by people in very powerful and often conservative positions like Dick Posner. And, mm -hmm. and I've been inspired by his work over the last few years. And hopefully that's, that's a sign for the future of the entire country, that we really do start thinking about some of these things. Mm -hmm. What makes you hopeful right now, if anything? Is there, is there a particular movement that you think activists should look to or uh, a cause that you find personally important that you've seen a lot of progress in? I, I see a lot of promise in young people mm. right now, students. They believe they can make a difference, and they are demanding that the places that they work for will actually help them to pursue some of the pro-social impact that they want to see happen yeah. in the world. And so I think that the m more, you know, really God, I see some brilliant students. And the more of these people that go out and take positions and prove their value to organizations and then make those demands, the more of them we have, the more likely yeah. it is that companies will. And you're seeing more of them at, at Martin over, over the years? Like you've been here seven years, you said? Six years, Six years. yeah. Okay. But I was at Georgetown before this, and the same is happening there. And, yeah. uh, you know, they're so smart, and they uh, values are really front and center, and there isn't the separation of occupation and 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 pro-social impact in the way that there was when I grew up. I yeah, feel like when I was growing I up, you know, you had your job and then you and would you do your, your charitable work, yeah. right? And they were two separate parts of your life. And I don't think students today see it that way. Yeah, no, I, and I think it is incredibly inspiring. The, the activism we're seeing at places like Google and Facebook. I have some friends that worked at Amazon who I think signed that letter to Amazon saying we really need to be carbon neutral. And mm -hmm. I think it's part of the reason why Jeff Bezos made that $15 billion donation because he saw, wow, even my employees are really upset about this. Now, I'm still not convinced Jeff Bezos is an ally to that movement. Maybe mm -hmm. he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know. But um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. There's obviously been a lot of counterarguments to that sort of employee activism too now, right? Concerned that it's, it's gone too far. And you have, you know, examples like Coinbase, which I think their CEO, Brian Armstrong, released a letter saying no politics at all. And I think the the difficulty, of course, of all this employee activism is, in, and frankly, this is true of movements, too, not just corporations, but all sorts of organization is, mm -hmm. if we're all concerned about everything, then we're all, all always fighting about everything. Mm -hmm. And so how do we move things forward, whether it's a corporation's mission or even an activist movement? So, for example, as animal rights activists, you know, um, there is a lot of fighting about um, how we should perceive the workers in slaughterhouses and factory farms. Because on the one hand, they are, in many cases, engaging in egregious abuse. There was a, a case uh, about a year ago of these workers, undocumented Latino workers, that were just kicking, viciously kicking these poor calves at a dairy farm. Um, and so 
you know, a lot of people have the natural tendency to say, let's go after them and let's punish them, criminally prosecute them. And that's actually what happened. And I think one of them was actually even deported, which is very sad and, and not right. And I'm giving away my hand now, but <laughs> there are others who say, no, it's, it's really important for us to show solidarity with racial justice. We're living in a time where our president is targeting a lot of immigrants. And, and honestly, I can see merit to both arguments, right? So if, I guess my question is, how do you create a culture where all these young people who have passions in many different areas can bring their passions forward in an authentic and powerful way while we still also, whether as movements or even as corporations, find ways to work together and fulfill the mission that we share, even if there are areas where we disagree? Mm -hmm. Do you have any insight in that? I, I like patterns toward employee activism. Um, I like the kinds of things that I see being accomplished through employee activism. I think we haven't perfected that model, but I like that people don't feel like these huge, powerful organizations that they work for that are like microcosms of societies often. Yeah. I like that they don't see them as closed tyrannies. I like that they're approaching them as democracies and places where they should have their voice heard. Um, just we spend so much time, time at work in our lives. You can't feel like you're not empowered or you can't feel like you can't pursue your values. You might not always feel like you're effective, but that's just no way to live to feel like you can't try to do good in the world in every minute of your day. So I like the, t the arsenal of tactics mm -hmm. that are starting to be developed for people to, to aspire to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what would you say to Brian Armstrong or Coinbase or even Sudhir Penkai, the Google CEO? Because Google, I think, recently penned a letter saying we're basically trying to tone down the amount of politics and activism in our company because yeah. we feel like it's gotten too far. Do you think they're I making think an ethical you, mistake, a strategic mistake, both? I think you have to walk the walk if walk that out. is your stance. So if Google feels like politics have no place in Google, mm -hmm. then I don't expect to see Google on the floor of Congress giving testimony about how regulation should be shaped yeah. or signing any Amici <laughs> or, you know, yeah. or, or giving congressional contributions or the companies are so deeply involved in politics right now. They are like puppet masters at the yeah. moment. And so if they want, if they want for their employees to not be in politics, then they're going to have to cut those puppet master strings because when the company's in politics, the employees are automatically in politics. Yeah, I think, yeah. And, and when you look at just the size of the Amazons and the Googles, and I mean, these are the size of, of medium-sized nations now. It's, 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 it's kind of shocking. Do you think that that growth needs to be reversed for us to actually accomplish a genuinely democratic workplace? Because... The reality is, no matter how powerful you might feel at Amazon, mm -hmm. I mean, my understanding of, of just the corporate structure of, of, of Amazons and the share classes is that Jeff Bezos essentially has unilateral control over the entire company, even though he doesn't control 51% of the shares. So I wonder if you have a thought on that. Do you think we need to reverse corporate concentration in, in order to truly create more democratic workplaces for people? Or Oh, boy. I, I don't know if I'm it's the right landmark. person to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that that involves so much about corporate scope and, yeah. and 
antitrust policy that I cannot say I have any expertise on. So I, I don't fully understand the economic consequences of yeah. just saying we need to reverse corporate growth. <laughs> and I don't think anybody knows. I think it's it's a really hard thing. And this is one of the hardest things about social science, right? Because we, we can't run the experiments that they run in physics, or at least we can't run them as easily right. as they run in physics and chemistry. And, and especially when you're talking about big civilization scale yeah. interventions, like should we break up a company? Well, and you know, you know that's, my, um, that's a hard question to answer. I have a colleague here at Wharton, Emily Feldman, who's one of the leading academics on uh, divestments and, hmm. and, you know, which is the principal tool of cutting back on corporate growth. And it, do, it often does not work out well for the stakeholders of the divested entities. So I think it, to the extent that we start to to try to enforce some of the scaling back of organizations, we also need to strengthen some of the protections yeah, for, for sure. uh, the stakeholders of divested firms. Wait, so can you explain that for a second for, for folks who don't? Because I'm not sure I fully understand. So what do you uh -huh. mean by divestment and divested entities? Oh, when a company sells a part of itself. I see. Right? So, you know, there's there's really two primary ways that companies get smaller. They okay. reorganize in bankruptcy sure. or they sell some of their appendages. I see. And, and, and so, so seeing how the, the two pieces do later on and how the employers are doing. Okay. And how the employees are treated. Sure. And, yeah. Okay. Because when you said divestment, I was thinking about fossil fuel divestment. Oh, and no. Like, yeah, but which is what a lot of actors think. Okay. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Well, this has been really fascinating. Any other lessons you think activists should take home from, from your research and from your experiences? You know, I, I think that symbolic wins symbolic should not wins. be um, taken lightly. There can be real impact in just the symbolic wins. Uh, have a really long-term, long-game perspective. Be willing to uh, walk with and reason with the, your opponent. Sometimes you can find points of agreement that can help you move toward change. Um, and keep innovating. Uh, Social movements need to always be innovating their tactics. So keep looking for new ways to reach corporate stakeholders and to reach and mobilize broader sets of people. Yeah, that's actually something Erica Chenoweth told me many years ago. Uh, I don't know if you know Erica Chenoweth. She's a political scientist at Harvard. She's most famous for coining this rule 3.5%, which is the rule that every society or movement that has had 3.5% of its population engaged in sustained nonviolent direct action mm -hmm. has achieved systemic change. But even that rule, she says, I'm actually not entirely sure about this. I mean, I, I think nonviolence is, seems like it has a lot of evidence behind it, but the one thing I'm pretty sure of, because it's been true of every successful social movement, is the importance of innovation. Mm -hmm. That if you keep doing the same thing, you always lose. Yeah. Because it's a dynamic game. You know, what you do, your adversaries will respond to. Exactly. And it's, it's kind of like... If, if every time you ran down the basketball court, you always shot the same shot from the same corner over and over again, I mean, the defense is just going to cluster in that corner and you're never going to get a shot off. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something that social movements don't do well enough. Um, actually, I, I'm going to ask you about that. Do you have any thoughts about how social movements can be more innovative? Because I think there is this trap where we get stuck in the same sort of tactic or rut or, or messaging even. Yeah, I, I think that most likely innovation will come naturally from movements expanding to talk to people that they mm -hmm. haven't typically talked to, right? I, I think that's typically where innovation comes okay. from, right? Interaction uh, between people that you're not necessarily like. Yeah. Um, so I, I imagine it's part of this working with, working with some um, people whose heart is in the right place within corporations who really yeah. understand some of the pressure points actually talking to people that know about shareholder activism. Mm -hmm. I really think this is the most 
uh, underexploited weak mm. point in companies that you you know if if everybody that bought a share in AMC yeah was an was a vegan yeah. we could completely change Tyson's <laughs> board yeah that makes sense even more reason it, it makes sense for maybe some activists to come to business school like Warren well hey thank you so much May this has been a fascinating conversation I really appreciate the time and everyone should check out May McDonald's website and work and. I don't know if you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug or publicize. Do you have any conferences, talks? That, that you're, you're, no? <laughs> I don't have anything okay. to plug at the moment. Okay. Well, anyways, <laughs> check out her work. I think it's really valuable. And um, she was on the Adam Grant's uh, Work Life podcast recently. You should definitely check out that episode about how to create change in corporations because there's a lot we can learn. There's a lot we can learn from talking to folks with different experiences. And, and I appreciate the chance to talk to you, May. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Everyone, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Um, Mary's got a lot of really important insights for anyone who's trying to create change. But this is the last podcast of the year, so I think it's an appropriate time to thank everyone who's been a part of it. And, and first and foremost, it starts with you. I would not be doing this podcast if not for the feedback, the support, the questions, the insights I developed from so many of the people who listen to this podcast. And every time I've been on a road trip, whether in North Carolina, Florida, recently, I've run into people who listen to the podcast. And you all are the reason we do this. And you all have helped us fashion what things we should talk about, what guests we should have. And, and I'm just so appreciative of all the support and feedback I've gotten from you. But there's other people who've been uh, more directly involved in the podcast. I want to thank, and you know, probably the most important person is Ronnie Rose. Ronnie is, in many ways, the intellectual driving force behind this podcast. The conversations I had with him when I was living with him um, about a year and a half, two years ago, I was crashing on his couch, getting bitten by his dog constantly, <laughs> Ira. Shout out to Ira, the dog who bit me a lot when I was living with Ronnie on his couch. But Ronnie and I had lots of conversations about what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with communication. And part of the reason we decided to do this podcast was because we felt this was an important contribution to the animal rights landscape and, and hope you feel the same. For the purpose of this uh, episode, I just want to say thank you to Ronnie personally, because he's an amazing dude, so smart, could be doing so many things in his life, and frankly is doing so many things in his life, and he's decided to spend some of his time to, to promote this podcast, help us form both the intellectual and just the tech foundations for what we're doing together here. So thanks, Ronnie. You're amazing, and your support of the years has meant so much to me. Priya Sohani is the person who edited this podcast. You know, I, I don't have to say too much about Priya because I think a lot of you probably know who she is. She's an incredible person, a legendary animal rights activist. And uh, I wouldn't be where I am today without Priya. She's also the co-parent of, of my dog and my cat. So Oliver and Joan send you lots of love this holiday season, Priya. And then there have been a lot of other team members just behind the scenes. If you see anything on social media about this podcast, it's probably because Lola Fakis posted it. I'm very rarely on social media, even though I should be. And I have some plans to be starting early in 2022. But for the time being, it's really Shalo doing all the hard work, making sure the podcast gets out there. And then we've got two other team members who played a really big role in this podcast, Julie Waldrup and Crystal Heath. Um, Crystal has done a bunch of audiograms. If you see those nice bright green audiograms, she's the one who makes those. Um, and Julie does a lot of the web stuff behind the scenes. And Actually, I don't even have access to the website. Julie and Ronnie are the ones who manage it. So if you want something changed on the website, I have to ask them because I don't even know how to log in. Anyways, it's a team effort. Uh, but again, I want to come back to the bigger team, which includes all of you. So thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with a friend, a family member, someone you think might have 
might be able to learn something from it. And if you like the podcast as a whole, if you've liked any of the episodes, share, share the Green Pill podcast with um, people you know who are interested in change, either on a personal level or on a social level. Uh, got some big plans for 2022. Stay tuned for more. But uh, in the meantime, Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. And I will see you again very, very soon.